Well, take your Bible now and turn to Galatians chapter 4. As Brock mentioned, I will be leading us in chapter 4 and next year when Marshall's on. He will lead us in chapter 5. It just keeps driving us back to where righteousness before a holy God, the God you're going to stand before one day, is pointed on a man wants to die, and after this, what? The judgment. So you and I are going to stand before this God we've been reading about and singing about today. And the only acceptable way for you to stand before him and stay in his presence is with a righteousness that comes alone by faith that is found alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this great book of Galatians, the apostle keeps driving us back to that truth where righteousness alone can be found. Now, yet, some people mentioned this morning about Deborah and I being gone for a week, and it's good to be back with you, and we were privileged to enjoy some more of God's creation out there in Colorado and in the mountains. And while we were there taking in the mountains, there happened to have been a a John Wayne sighting out there in the... uh, in, in the mountains, yes, John Wayne, still alive, riding those mountains. Now, I, I can enjoy those mountains to its absolute fullness in a special way because my father made those mountains, and he made those mountains for his glory and for me to be able to appreciate in a unique way as his child. And every beast of the field, he says in Psalm 50 is mine, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And to be able to go and to enjoy that in such a, a, a wonderful way uh, as, his, as his child. And Marshall so well drove home to us last week, there was a time that you were not his child. There was a time you were not his son or his daughter uh, in the faith. And he wasn't uh, your father Your father was of the God of this world, of the very enemy of of God, of, of Satan himself. And so this theme of sonship keeps coming back to us likewise in the Scripture. And if there's anything that I want you to leave here today saying that Pastor preached about or tried to from the Scripture preached about is the reality, the uniqueness of being God's dear child. And we sang about that even a moment ago. I wonder if when you were new in the faith, I pray that you're in the faith today, that you were new in the faith, that you learned John 1.12. Did you learn it? Because of the beauty of how it says what so much more even of the Scriptures has to say about this idea of being a child, about this idea, this wonderful privilege of, of sonship. But as many as received him, to them... To them, he gave the right to be children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And you remember back in verse 25 of Galatians chapter 3, just going back a little bit 
in verse 25. But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a tutor. Verse 26, verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And in the wonder of the blessings and the privileges that we have in this this idea of this doctrine, this truth of sonship, you as his child have the direct access to the Father through the Son. And the Father is particularly, even right now, attuned to the issues and the concerns of your life as your heavenly Father. And he loves you. Now think about this. He loves you with the love that he has for his own dear son. Now just think about that for a moment. Think about that on a human level as a parent. As a parent, what do you treasure? What do you love? What do you care about more than the reality on a human level than your children? And the Bible takes that and relates that to God the Father with reference to his love for his only begotten Son, and you and I, as we'll see later, as joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the love that he has for him, he has that love for his children. I like the way when Jesus is talking about prayer in Matthew 7, he reminds us of the uniqueness of that. When he tells us to pray and keep on praying, that perseverance matters much to the God of heaven, And then he says this in Matthew 7, 9 through 11. Just look at it. It's on the overhead with me. He says, Or what man is there among you when he asks asks his son, ask for a loaf, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he not give him a snake? Will he? If you then, being evil, as we are fallen creatures in in lostness, in, in humanity, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, Say the next three words with me. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask of him? Why? Because of the uniqueness that we have as sons and daughters of the living God. And so the apostle is going to drive that home in Galatians 4, 1 through verse 5 this morning with the idea that along with this, and we sang about that this morning, In verse 29, uh, 329, because we're in a transition in chapter 4, he says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, heirs according to promise. You have a promised inheritance, and you have inherited the promises of spiritual blessings and salvation, which includes the righteousness of Christ, that came to Abraham one way by faith and are fulfilled for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you think about heir, you also think about an inheritance. And that's what he's going to move to in verse 4 through 3 and then drive it home in verses 4 and 5 for the purpose of helping the, the Galatians see the potential of where they could be going back to with reference to the law. So Paul picks up on this analogy of a child and of an inheritance to demonstrate the believer's status before you were a Christian 
and then the blessings that all changed with the coming of Christ when you came to him through the gospel and have new life in him based upon verses 4 and 5. And he's relating this as an infant when the status, so you were a status of a slave or a child. You're going to see that in the text. But I'm just going to sum it up this way. Here's what he's doing in verses 1 through 3. He's saying before salvation, you, you, you had a status, you had a spiritual standing on the level of a child and on the level of slave. In fact, he's going to say you were in bondage. And then he's going to point out, based upon God sending his son to redeem sinners, the new status after salvation relates to adulthood and sonship and the inheritance and all the blessings that relate to sonship. So let me say it one other way. He's saying there's a time you were in bondage with the status of a slave and you owned nothing. And he's going to move you to a time that you became a son and you inherited everything. And his argument is this. The Judaizers want to take you back to a time under the law when you were in bondage. And you don't want to go there, but move on in your love and commitment to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he's he's talking about your previous condition prior to salvation in verses 1 through 3, by analogy, to drive home to these Galatians where they were prior to coming to Christ. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1. Here we go. And he starts it, connecting it to verse 29 and this concept of heirs. He says, now I say, paraphrase, here's what I'm going to say. Here's what I want you to think about. That's the idea. That's the transition. What I want you to think about is this. As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. And they say, what's he doing? What's going on here? Well, just follow me. Notice what he's saying, as long as the heir is a child. Now, the word there for child is with reference to an infant, even before an infant begins to, to, to talk. Little child. And he's saying as long as the heir is in the form of an infant, of a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, although as an heir he owns everything. So by birthright he owns everything, and yet in his present condition he possesses nothing. Like a slave... He has no authority. He is subservient to others. He has no control over the very things to which will one day be his, but he is a dependent, and he's going to be expressed as in bondage. And when I worked on this particular passage, I was thinking, all the young people are here today thinking, that's me. I'm in bondage right now as a child. But that's not the point of the text. But the point of the text is that as everyone was hearing this being written, being read, excuse me, to the Galatians, they understood what he was talking about. Because in the ancient world, whether the Greek customs or whether it be the Roman world or with reference to Jewish understanding of, of a, a young man or a young woman, in all of that there was a time 
when a young person would become of age and there'd be a there'd be a transition from infant or childhood unto adulthood in fact he's going to drive this home a little bit more in verse 2 as an explanation let me just read it here's what he's saying here's my explanation he's saying but he is the infant the child Though he owns everything, he has nothing in terms of where his status. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Now, in the ancient world, there was this coming of age. There was this transition to sonship and even with reference to a young lady. And in the Roman world, there was a thing called the taga virilis, And there was a particular ceremony and particular celebration by the family and by friends when a child was developed or decreed by the father officially as a son and relating to his privileges and to his power and with reference to his inheritance. In the Jewish law, there was with reference to a young person when he would, particularly a young man, at 12 years old, we call it his bar mitzvah, bar son of the law. And at 12, he would be declared in terms now of a greater adult with reference to his obligation to the law. Although it appears that even that may be true, yet later would be a time when a father would say that the inheritance could be his, either be declared by the father or upon the death of the father. You remember in the story of the prodigal son that the son came to the father, and he's a young man, but he didn't have the inheritance yet. And what did he say? Dad, I want it what? I, I want it now. I want it now. So even with reference to the Jews who had been converted to Christ that Paul is writing to, they understand what's going on here. The Greeks called this another particular word that had reference to when a a young person of Greek heritage would become at 18 years old, he would be declared of this particular status. In fact, I have a good quote here by Dr. MacArthur kind of explaining this again. Hope that you can read it with me. In ancient Greece, a boy was under his father's control until about the age of 18. At that time, a festival called this would be held in which the boy was declared a that, (laughs) a type of cadet with special responsibilities to his clan or a city or state for a period of two years. During the coming-of-age ceremony, the boy's long hair would be cut off and offered to the god of Apollo. At the Roman ceremony, boys would take their toys, and at a similar ceremony, girls would take their dolls and offer them and sacrifice to the gods as a symbol of putting childhood behind them. It was that custom that Paul alluded to in his comments. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Isn't that good? So what I'm pointing out here is from this analogy that the apostle is using, his hearers totally understand what's going on. And when we get to verse 2, he's using a couple of different words that likewise drive this home. I mentioned that. He is under guardian or manager. Some of your Bibles say tutors. It's actually a different word than what was used back in verse 23. Or manager or a governor. The first word has reference to watching over the personal care of the child. 
The second word was like a trustee who protected the estate or the financial affairs of that young man. Cromacki makes this statement in his helpful commentary on Galatians. He says, according to Roman law, however, a guardian had charge of a child until the latter became 14 years of age. Then a curator, that is the second word, a manager, guided the young man until he was 25. Then there was this change that would took place. So Paul takes this status of an heir, yet to come of age, determined by a father, and he applies it to himself and the Galatians prior to their salvation. How do you get that? Look with me at verse 3. Look at verse 3. He says, so also we. Now he's talking about himself and the Galatians who have responded to the gospel. He's saying, so also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So now he's making the application. He's driving it home to the fact of their spiritual condition. And he uses this word, this word, elemental things. That word is used seven times in the New Testament. Three times Paul attaches it to the world, and that's what he does here. Look at the verse again. Held in bondage under the elemental things of the world on a human level. One writer calls this the ABCs of the world system and of human understanding. And the best definition, I believe, that we have of where he's coming from, and you know what it is. If you don't, you will by the time we look at it in context. Look over in verse 9 with me where he uses one of the other times that he uses this word over in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, we're going to come to that next week. Know God or been known by him. How is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless, here's our word, elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Here it is, verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And then he says, I fear for you. What is he talking about? He's talking about the law. The law and all of the ceremonies that the Galatians, whether it be of Jewish background, the Galatians, or the Gentiles with reference to their own idea of law or righteousness, where they were in bondage before Christ. This through the law. Notice also in the book of Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Two other uses of his word here. Talking about the bondage before the gospel and before coming to Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. 2, 8. But start in verse 6 with me, would you? Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Now watch the warning. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the 
elemental principles, elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. There is that word again, that elementary principles. Look with me a little farther in chapter 2 of Colossians, verse 20. Here's the word found again. And what is he doing? He's referring to the old life under the bondage of the law and a righteousness sought by human effort rather than by divine work of righteousness imputed in Christ. Colossians 2.20. Just to see if you're with me, will you say amen if you're on 2.20 right now? Say amen? Good. If you have died with Christ, here's our word again, to the elementary principles of the world, why as you were living in the world do you submit yourself, here we are back to the law, decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, legalism, a righteousness by legalism, by man. Why would you want to even consider going back to that? Now turn back to our text. So see what he's doing. He's he's relating to that to where the Galatians had come from. And as Marshall so well reminded us with, with that statement of the fact that the law was necessary and the law was good, the problem is the law was not sufficient or ever intended to save anyone. Good, yes, insufficient to save. And Paul wants the Galatians to see how that's where the Judaizers want to take them back to childhood prior to their conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for you and I, along with those Galatians who were Gentile believers, we were in bondage to the elemental things of human religion, were we not? You understand, and I'm, I, I, it may be true and common for a lot of people to very, be very religious and dedicated, dedicated to a religious system, but at the same time, totally lost. Totally lost. You ever heard anybody say, or perhaps there was a time in your life you said this, I got my own religion. You ever heard anybody say that? I got my own religion. This is what I do. This is how I worship. This is what I believe. This is what I think about how you get to heaven. All human philosophy, all empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. And so many of us, so many of us, were like a Martin Luther, who was an incredibly religious man, or like a John Wesley, likewise was another man committed to his religion but to himself said he was lost until he came to grips with the gospel. And perhaps you're a little bit like me in the fact that I remember prying to, to uh, my conversion through the gospel, having some religious discussions with my friends. Do you remember any of that going on in your life prior to coming Christ? Sitting around talking about, well, what do you think about religion? Well, I, here's what I think, and here's what I believe, and Here's what I do, and you all had really good ideas. Nobody had, a, nobody had a Bible in hand, and nobody mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. It was all on an elementary, humanistic level. 
that had you in bondage because the bottom line, if it wasn't in Christ, it was some kind of a system of law or system of works, and man will never be saved by his human effort apart from Christ. Will you say amen to that? And he's saying, that's where you were. Now, what Paul is saying is, why in the world would you want to go back to that bondage? We were in bondage to a system. We were in bondage to ourselves, living for ourselves. And we were in bondage to the God of this world. And Paul drives that home, doesn't he, in Ephesians chapter 2, when he tells us where we were coming and the, the authority that we were living under, whether we sensed it personally or not. And then what he does in verse 4, we have that wonderful word, but. <laughs> but God, but. And now what he does is he shows us how salvation was brought to you, you Galatians, in the sending of God's Son and the message of forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it's good to stop and just remember where you came from. That you didn't come to some kind of intellectual understanding and all of a sudden you're in the light. You were an enemy of God. You had your own way, and God, through his mercy, brought you to the reality of it's not yourself, it's not your works, but it's Christ and Christ alone and by faith in Christ through this good news about his death, burial, and his resurrection. But it's good not to live in the past, not to dwell on the past, but remember, there was a time you were lost. And do you want to live that way again? Do you want to live that way again? with no real hope, just a maybe concerning your eternity. Now look at verse 4 and verse 5. And if I was a Puritan, we would be spending the next 38 weeks just on those two verses, okay? But I'm not a Puritan, but I sure loved them. But listen, I mean, here's the gospel. Here's the most wonderful news brought to, man, brought to mankind. And here's the hope. Remember, the word is hope is absolute assured expectation in the Scriptures. But God, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law and that we might receive, here we are back to the same concept again, the adoption as sons. Do you notice the parallel? Here's the parallel that's going on. As a father set the time for a son coming of age, God the Father determined the time to send his son to earth to redeem sinners sinners under the curse because of being under the law. And through the sending of God's Son to take you, to take you through the gospel from the status of a child in bondage to full sonship in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this inheritance that we have about sonship is all the present privileges and blessings that are yours now 160 sometimes in the New Testament, in Christ. That are yours now, in Jesus Christ. And a future inheritance 
that is coming your way in eternity. When Peter talks about the future inheritance, he says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Look at it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain a, here it is, inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. A great, great inheritance now in Christ, the privileges and blessings that come to you being his child of forgiveness and assurance. In fact, we could go over there into Galatians chapter, excuse me, Galatians, Ephesians. Go over to Ephesians chapter 1. And we could spend the next hours on the longest sentence from Paul in chapter 1, verses 3 down through verse 12. And what is he doing in these verses? He is telling you, you have no idea of all that is yours in the Son. Let me read some of it. 1, 3 through verse 12. 11. And notice, as I read through here, I stop less times than Marshall. Have you, I want you to notice that, please. Will you please notice that? He can't get through it. He's going to stop because he, he just goes there in all these other verses. And aren't you thankful for that? He just saturates us in the Word of God. And may every preacher that brings the Word to us do the same. Amen? But I just wanted to brag on the fact that I can get through here more than him. Verse 3, 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. Has he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that is, in Son. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Wouldn't the fact of being forgiven just be enough? Verse 8, which he lavished on us In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summation up of the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained, here it is again, an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. All of our blessings in the Lord Jesus Christ. Schaff makes the statement in his classic church history. He makes this statement, the world had been providentially prepared and God had put all the pieces together for the perfect moment of sending his son. Another writer says the divine intervention 
that brought hope and freedom to mankind, that answers the question of, well, who is this, and when is this, and how is this, that is declared in Genesis 3.15. How's that all going to work out? Who's that going to involve? You get over into the book of Isaiah, and it's about a lamb. And we move in progressive revelation all the way to the time that Paul's talking about right here, the, the absolute fullness of time by God's sovereign, eternal timetable calendar. And the, everything was set for it. The world was prepared for it. And in redemptive history, then everything's moving toward that, and now in the sending of his son is the absolute very pinnacle of redemptive history. And then it, get, it moves on from there, and then it's going to come again to, in terms of the next great event in redemptive history. And it's not only going to be his first coming, it's going to be what? Everybody say it with me. It's his, yeah, amen, it's his second coming. And everything in redemptive history centers around that. In the first coming, of course, what did he come for? What the rest of the text is saying with reference to the cross. And the Bible is telling us, Paul is telling us, by divine direction of the Holy Spirit, this was the fullness. This was the perfect time. Bethlehem was the absolute moment designed by God for the world to be changed and never recover from his coming. And my, I hope that's your testimony this morning. You've never recovered, not just from the coming of Christ, but from the coming of Christ into your life through believing upon Christ and being made a new creation in Jesus Christ. And you say, my life has never been the same since Christ came into my life through the gospel. And I experienced, I didn't know all this stuff about inheritance that we just read, but man, I knew that I'd been changed, I knew that I'd been forgiven, and I knew that I had new life that you would be able to say that even this morning. Different commentators talk about the fact how everything was perfect in timing in terms of in the world culturally, politically, and religiously. Commonly, it's, it's mentioned the fact that with reference to prior to the Roman era was the Greek era and this great general, uh, remember by the name of the title of Alexander the Great, who... Who'd, takes, conquers a better part of the known world prior to the Roman. But in the process of him doing that, he establishes a common koinia, language of commerce and interaction through the better part of, of the known world, setting up the stage for later on Paul and others being able to communicate the gospel in a, a known language of a better part of the, of the, of the empire of the world. Or this thing about the, what was called the Pax Romana, this Roman law that allowed for safe travel through roads that had been covered and, and had been prepared by the Roman army as later on they conquered the better part of the known world. And so these roads were established and there was a safety of a Roman citizen to travel and take the gospel. And with reference to God's called people as a nation, the nation of Israel. There had already taken place historically a, a, a captivity for the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that was to purge once and for all that there is not all kinds of different deities, but there is but one God. 
And having learned their lesson now, they are scattered throughout the better part of the known world, having these synagogues that if there was anything that God's people knew in terms of the Jewish heritage was that there is one God and only one God preparing the way for Paul and for others to come and say, yes, that's right, and God has worked and provided for a way to be man to be saved through his son. Daniel talks about this fullness of time, and Daniel chapter 9 predicts this coming of the great Messiah. And then we have statements like this in Isaiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name, everybody say it, God with us in our presence. So the features of these things begin with just the reality of the, of the perfect, absolute timing of him sending his son. But he also mentions the reality of who it was that came and his status. The time came, God sent forth his son. Here is his, here is his deity, God's son. By the way, it doesn't say God became the son. We were studying with reference to the ladies' study in the book of the Truth War and how very early in church history, like as early as the third century, there was this common teaching, and it's true in false cults today, of what is called modalism. And one of the teaching very early in church history was that you had a God who just manifested himself in different ways. And not that we have three persons of the Trinity, that's what was rejected, the triune nature of God, but rather that God simply, there was a mode, modalism, a manifestation of him. And the text very, very clearly sends, tells us that God sent his Son, the eternal Son, the second person of the triune God. Big deal. Born of a woman. Bethlehem. He's truly God, but he's also truly what? Man. But he wasn't always man. In the incarnation, he became man. He became a man for the purpose of what? Down in verse 5, of redeeming us. Philippians 2, we know this passage, but it's the reminder of the incarnation and the purpose of it. Have this mind, have this attitude, have this mindset in yourself, which also is in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, there's his eternality, his deity, as the Son. Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or selfishly held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And he came for the purpose of becoming man, and in becoming a man, he, like all other men, he obeyed perfectly the law and fulfilled the law. Notice, born of a woman, under the law. And Jesus said of himself in Matthew 5, 17, he did not think that he came, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to what? Everybody say it. But to what? To fulfill. He fulfilled the law as the Son of God. 
in human flesh, and he kept every aspect of the law, lived what kind of life? A sinless life, and then qualified to be an acceptable payment for your and for my sin. His humanity, all coming for this purpose. Notice verse 5. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. And here we are, right back to chapter 3. Come right back to chapter 3, verse 13. 313. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Verse 13, how? By becoming cursed for us. There it is. And if you remember the time that I just focused on the reality of the concept or the doctrine of redemption itself, and I know you remember because you remember everything about every sermon we've ever preached, amen? That the focus of redemption was a work of God, not man, sending his son. A focus of redemption is a ransom that had to be paid. And the focus of redemption, number three, is a rescue from our sin. And in the fullness of time that he might redeem those under the law that we might receive this adoption as sons, this great, great inheritance. I love 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might be made rich. First Peter 3 reminds us again of why he came in redemption. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The who? The, the just for, everybody read it, the just for the, that's us. So that he might do what? He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And he came to this earth because the Father made the Son come, and the Son had no choice in that. What did Jesus say? Thank you, you're shaking your heads there. I heard the rattle. (laughs) For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This commandment I receive from my Father. He, his death was a volitional death of his own choosing in perfect union with the will of the Father to redeem the worst of earth. And not only forgive me, but say, that's my son in Christ. That is my child. I love that child with the love that I have with my own son. Wow. And there's the, this, this inheritance that we're talking about is in these next verses. But I said I'm going to stop in verse 5, so I will stop there, but I'm going to go to another passage. So we'll go over to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We turn to Romans 8. Because it's saying the same thing we're coming to in the next verses. But I love the way that the apostle conveys this great blessings of now being in Christ. Notice he said we receive the adoption as sons. The adoption as sons. 
Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse, let's begin in verse 12. So then, brethren, we're under, we are under obligation, obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Aren't you thankful for that? For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live by the Spirit. Now, verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are, what are they? Here it is again. They're sons of God. Now watch the blessings and the benefit. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. Fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Daddy or Abba, Father. The fear of condemnation is over. Sonship brings this closeness of God the Father as you being his adopted son, adopted daughter. What else does he say? Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What is another blessing of sonship? It's blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a glory of fortress divine. Blessed assurance. We t- the Spirit himself within our hearts, do you have that this morning, testifies with our own human spirit that we are children of God, that we know, that we know, that we know, that we know by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift of our inheritance. What else? Verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and we love to say it the way the King James says it here, don't we? And joint heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And here we are again, right back to this idea, joint heir, fellow heir, all that God loves and has given with reference to the Son. He's likewise blessings that are ours in him. And the supreme gift of our inheritance, I believe, is mentioned in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Do you know what the greatest inheritance that you have in the Son is the inheritance of God himself? And one day you're going to stand in his presence, and you will take in his glory, the one who made you and made all things, and sent a son, his dear son, the second person of the triune God, to die in your place for your sin, to bring you into his family and into his glory one day and be an eternal trophy of his saving grace. What a plan. What a God. And you understand one more time, Paul is saying to the Galatians, you want to, be, you want to go back to that old bondage? You want to go back to that old, season, that old, that, 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 that old slavery of wondering, have I done enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? rather than once for all finish complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you respond to this wealth inheritance that's yours as adopted sons of God in Jesus Christ? Well, I hope one one way you respond to that is why you're here today. You want to worship this God. You're here today because he's so worthy of your worship, because of what he's done in his son. And that's why you're here. He is absolutely worthy of worship 
I think that involves our, our thankfulness to him. You know, I mentioned that Deborah and I spent that week uh, out west, and we were up 10,000 feet up into the mountains in this beautiful place, and the week was given to us by somebody we've never met and we do not know. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's just a gift on this level. <laughs> we have a greater lift, greater gift on the eternal level. Now, how do we respond to that? Number one, with worship. Number two, turn with me to Colossians chapter one. I'm going back to a text that we've been before, but it says it. Number one, our worship. Number two, here it is, our walk, right? How we now live our lives in light of who we are in Jesus Christ and all that we have in him, our, our walk. Colossians chapter one, and I will read this text because it says it all concerning our response to this inheritance. One verse nine, been there before, gonna come back again. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, how Paul's praying for these believers, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen? In our worship and in our walk. Let's pray. So with praise, with praise to you, Father, the fullness of time, and to be able to live in a day, as we heard about Matthew Henry mentioning this morning, to be in an age of a knowledge of the gospel, to know what you've done to redeem by sinners out of the bondage of our sin and penalty of our sin. We thank you for that. We give you praise for that. May we never, never, ever recover from what you've done in Christ. And if there be someone here today that says, that's not me, I pray that you work in their hearts right now to realize that unless, unless they repent of their sin, Turn and turn to Christ and Christ alone on the basis of the authority of the Word of God. God promises that He'll save you and forgive you and make you His dear child. And I thank you for that this day. And I ask that what we've heard this morning will impact our hearts in a way that's evident in our lives this week and in the days to come until the Son returns. And I pray these things in His name and all His people said. Amen.